This is ASAR Training and Response Podcast, Episode 8, where we interview Laura Chavarria, Director of Nashville Humane. Welcome back, everybody, to the ASAR Training and Response Podcast. With us today, as always, is our co-host, Carla Lewis. Hello, everybody. And we're also really excited today to bring on Laura Chavaria from Nashville Humane. And uh, welcome, Laura. And we're excited to have you today as as you are kind of a well-rounded disaster administrator, responder, planner, have worn a great many shoes at a great many levels, everything from cleaning the cages to running the entire program. Um, so welcome, and can you kind of talk to our listeners and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and what's going on in your world these days? Sure. What a lovely introduction. You make me sound so good. I, I want you to give me a pep talk every morning when I'm looking in the mirror. Um, yeah, so you kind of touched upon a lot of the things that I've done. I have graduated from um, the Ohio State University in um, Columbus, Ohio, with a degree in biology. So that started my love for animals and everything living. And I've been working in the animal welfare industry for about 11 years now. Even though I'm only 22, I've been in the industry for 11 years. Um, I'm really 33. Uh, But I did start at a young age. Um, I started in the industry right out of college. I um, really got interested in animal sheltering by volunteering when I was in college. I was walking dogs and photographing them and just really fell in love with it and saw that nobody else my age was being involved. So as soon as I graduated, I said, all I want to do is animal sheltering. I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know if it's a career, but I moved to Florida for a boy. Um, That's usually how all stories start off and um, started working at an animal shelter. And I just worked my way up. I started out working as a kennel technician in Florida with no air conditioning and our annual intake was 12,000 animals. So um, feeding, cleaning, walking them, learning animal behavior, I really got my feet wet just doing the nitty gritty everyday things um, and slowly worked my way up. I um, became an animal cruelty investigator and that's actually where a lot of my training um, and learning started. I became um you know, I went through all the NACA training. I think that's actually where I met Eric was uh, going through all the animal cruelty things and learning and, and picking your brain left and right. Um, and then sure enough, I was promoted to director. So I've, I have done everything. I, I, I don't want to say everything in animal sheltering, but I have dipped my toe in everything. Um, I've also worked in three different states in animal sheltering, Ohio, Florida, and Tennessee, and they each have their own challenges. So that's kind of... Um, helped make me um, more well-rounded. I am currently a certified animal welfare administrator through the Association for Animal Welfare Advancement. And I just finished the shelter manager course through the University of Pacific um, through a scholarship from Maddie's Fund. I always wanna keep learning. Um, the, our industry is constantly changing and that's why I love people like you and Carla who you're a wealth of knowledge. So I know I can pick up the phone and call you and learn so much. Um, I'm currently the director of Nashville Humane in Nashville, Tennessee. A hundred people moved to Nashville a day. We are one of the biggest it cities. So a hundred people moving here means that there's more animals to care for. We take in about 4,000 dogs and cats a year. I have a staff of 35, 300 foster families and 900 volunteers. Um, We have programs from adoption to low cost spay and neuter to humane education. One of the programs that we started last year was doggy dates and rover nights. Essentially, folks come in and they can rent out a dog for an hour or three hours and um, promote it up for adoption, take it to some of our really cool places in Nashville like Broadway, Centennial Park, um, or if they want to do a rover night, if they want to spend the night and have a pajama party, they're welcome to do that. And we found this to be an amazing adoption tool and a community outreach tool. One of our biggest hurdles is that folks don't even know we exist. So um, if they're not going to be coming to us, we will be bringing the animals into the community so that they know that we're here and we are their local shelter. Um, Also, being in Nashville, we constantly rub elbows with celebrities. Our most recent adopter um, was Billy Ray Cyrus. He adopted a dog named Tommy Jack, which is a black lab pit bull. 
um, Pink has adopted and Kelly Clarkson has adopted, and that's all within the last six months. Um, We partner with HSUS, ASPCA on disaster response. It doesn't necessarily mean we go and respond, but we will take animals from um, evacuation sites. So I coordinate a lot with HSUS and ASPCA on that. And we just pride ourselves in collaborating with as many people to save as many lives as possible. I can talk forever, um, but I think that maybe gives you a little bit about me and um, what we do here at Nashville Humane. Yeah, no, that is amazing. And, you know, what a great idea to have the the doggy nights the and those meetings. If I was in my 20s, I would totally be going to get a dog every Friday night, running out to see how many people I could get to adopt this animal. Maybe pick up a phone number. Well, you know, (laughs) hand in hand. Women love pets and cute pets and, you know, little wingmen here. You can adopt a wingman. There you go. We need to do that angle for marketing next year. Thank you for that idea. (laughs) No, that sounds, that sounds all amazing. And you, you hit on one of the most important points that that we're actually going to drive home later on in this podcast is how shelter administrators get involved in a network like yours um, during disasters to provide an area for evac pets coming out of an impact area. And for those that don't understand how that works, shelters that are that are full down in an impact area, if they know a disaster is coming, if they know a hurricane is coming, they work hard to find transport partners and shelter partners that can take the animals that are ready for adoption, get them out of harm's way, give them a whole new area uh, of potential life-changing adoption folks, and we clear those shelters out as fast as possible ahead of the storm or ahead of the disaster to be ready so those impact areas can take in animals and and it actually helps promote reunification because there's space there. If there's no space at those impacted shelters, God only knows where those animals end up at and it's harder for people to get reunited with their pets. So providing that service is critical in the infrastructure to make everything else work. And, And you've heard that in multiple podcasts, we have to do this work ahead of the disaster or nothing else functions correctly. So thank you to Nashville Humane and and Laura for being part of that network and working with the national partners that are so great at at getting that done. Thank you. So Laura, how did you get involved uh, like for the first time with animal disaster response? What was your introduction to that? Um, Living in Ohio, we really didn't have um, disasters when I worked there, but when I moved in Florida, it was a completely different story. Um, I experienced hurricanes and flooding uh, a lot when I was an animal control officer in Fort Myers, Florida. And so I saw a need firsthand and the impact that it made on others. Um, I worked in Florida for about six years and then I transitioned up to Nashville, but my passion for disaster response followed. And some things are serendipitous. I had moved here and I think within a year, Eric was offering training in Knoxville. It was a, a boot camp. And I knew I had to go. I had seen Eric train in other areas. And I begged my mayor to please make disaster response a priority for um, the shelter I was working at at that time. And they did. They funded me to go to Knoxville for a week and learn everything I can from Eric. And meeting him and meeting the folks that are like-minded ignited that passion even more even though i hadn't responded yet just learning the ways to respond learning how to collaborate seeing how high level it is and how elevated it is and how smart eric is and i'm not trying to like make your head (laughs) big eric um my earbuds popped out (laughs) he knew so much and so learning from him and seeing how everybody felt this was in the summer so we knew hurricane season was coming and I think it was in June, Eric, that the training was, or July? Yeah, remember? It, it, one of those. It, I definitely remember summer. Yeah, so hurricane season came, and Eric was like, hey, I am driving through Nashville. I know you just went through boot camp. Um, do you want to hur- uh, experience a hurricane? <laughs> well, sure I do, Eric. I would love that. So he picked me up, uh, I think, from a truck stop. And we drove down. <laughs> that sounded so. That sounded so bad. But he tricked, picked me up from a truck stop and um, loaded my 15 bags because I'm quite the overpacker. And um, we headed down to Florida and we staged before Hurricane Irma hit. So experiencing it 
um, from hunkering down and watching the Weather Channel 24-7 and seeing Eric get up every day at like 4 o'clock in the morning and, and see where the storm's going. And it was just amazing to see the collaboration between um, agencies, whether local or national, and you see the good and the bad. Besides collaboration, you, I did see some competition. Um, and Eric warned me, you did. Um, but I saw the importance in clear communication, the willingness to help, Definitely the importance of PPE and hot washes. We uh, cleaned many a boat in uh, lots of dry suits and wetsuits that we had to scrub. So that was um, fun. And then I think the biggest um, thing I learned from Hurricane Irma was just the acts of kindness. There was one volunteer group that was willing to do our laundry and it was stinky and it was sweaty and it was from being in floodwaters and these women folded my underwear and my socks and had it clean for me. And it just that small act of kindness during such a chaotic time meant a lot. And seeing everybody that Eric and Code 3 collaborated with and how beautiful their communication was. They met every night. They had phone calls. I mean, it was a 24-7 perfectly orchestrated thing. And to see that firsthand is so inspiring and makes me want to go back every time there's a disaster because I know the people I'm going with and the caliber of what they can do and their hearts that they have. Yeah. And just to provide a little bit more to that story, you know, the, the reason that, that we had invited Laura along so soon after her training, because traditionally we take along technicians and specialists, but Laura had, you know, she was in a new position and she was looking more for a mentorship of, Hey, I need scope of the EOC, I need scope of the of the public media, I need scope of what really happens in a disaster to enhance the planning here in Nashville. And we had BART and we had the team and we were headed through Nashville. So we threw her on um, with little to no warning and really did say, meet us at a truck stop at this time, we're going through if you wanna jump on. And the next 10 days was a wild ride. And I, I will do a big shout out to one of our mentors and instructors, Kathy Hammock. Um, Kathy mm -hmm. and, and Laura stuck together as a team for the most part. And, and I get really busy during disasters. And so I fly around like a flitter bug. Um, but everybody else in the team pulled together and, and spent time with Laura. And Laura actually was helping us quite a bit on the social media because I had never done live Facebook feeds or anything like that. So she was teaching me how not to look so stupid on camera. It you made me so feel well. young. But, <laughs> you well, made me feel young. I don't know technology, but you don't know technology. So right. that was... That was fun to be part of the disaster and do selfies and, and update people in real time. That was really um, exciting. Yeah, no, Carla and Carrie will stand by you 100% that Eric is not a tech guy <laughs> and is the first one to say, somebody else do this or tell me what to do. Because uh, I'm a field guy, definitely. Well, Laura, Hurricane Irma was really exciting and it was a learning experience for all of us as we transitioned from different spots and different tasks uh, in, in Florida and ending up down in DeSoto County in Arcadia during Hurricane Irma. How did all that, being able to see all those different aspects, all those players come into play, what were you able to take back or, or what are the, some of the bullet points that you took back to Nashville um, to start the community planning discussions at your, at your Metro? So to be quite frank, I was scared because what I noticed was that everything worked well where we went. And that's because the local government and the local players seemed to be working well together and seemed to be on the same page. So when I come back to Nashville, I love Nashville. It's an amazing city, um, but we have a lot of work ahead of us um, when it comes to disaster planning. So it showed me the importance um, of immediately planning a meeting with all of the players. And that included uh, OEM, EOC, um, the other animal welfare organization that's in this county, which is Metro Animal Care and Control. We wanted to see what was in writing. What is the plan that we have? And the plan, when we pulled it out and got in the same room, was over six years old. And some of the things that we read weren't accurate or realistic. So that 
showed us we needed to start from scratch and review and revamp that document and find out where there's resources. Um, because something that I saw that worked really well down in Florida for Hurricane Irma is there was a plethora of resources, but how do we plug them in? So we talked here in Nashville, what resources do we have? Could we get any grants? If we collaborate, you know, what? who do you have as a donor? Um, where's your storage? Just starting that communication, I think, and getting everybody in the same room was the first thing that we did. And that's when it kind of bared to light all the work we have to do and we're continuing to do. Um, we've had a flood in the past two years where we had to evacuate animals into a high school. Um, but the evacuation point was where the flood was. So we did not have another location chosen. So we learned, um, I don't want to say by failure, but we learned that we were not prepared. So now we know we have to have multiple evacuation points. Um, as you said earlier, even though my shelter is not the government entity here, we're included in the planning because we do have resources and we do have a role that we play. I am very thankful that our players in the community um, welcome us with open arms. And we also are looking at continued training. So how can we all learn together and be on the same page? And I think that has to go um, with the SOPs and knowing what role everybody plays, knowing what resources there are. And going to Hurricane Irma, like I said, it scared me just because I knew we didn't have that on a local level, level and that that was going to be a job for me when I got back. And it takes a team. It takes everybody having a willingness to get in the same room and hammer out what works, what doesn't, what are you willing to do um, when the time comes and when it starts to, when the poop hits the fan. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you, you touch on so many important points in there um, that all planners, whatever your level, whatever your station, whether you're an animal control officer in the field or whether you are an administrator at a shelter, from a, a government planning standpoint, and I will tell you, I have done catastrophic planning at city levels, uh, at agency levels, all the way up to federal government levels. And the government piece will not function without the support of non-governmental organizations. We call them NGOs. The NGOs are the nonprofits, are the, the people that are willing to come in and work within the emergency management structure um, so their resources can be plugged in, but you know, everybody says, well, you know, the county will take care of it or the state will take care of it. Guys, I'm here to tell you that those resources are limited and usually tasked way before the event ever happened. So it's important to fill a lot of the gaps with the NGOs. And from the shelter point of view, shelters are so critical because they fill several uh, positions in the template for emergency management, one being mass care. So working with Red Cross and, and working with faith-based groups that when people show up to a spontaneous shelter and they bring their animals, there's usually not an animal component in place. So having something like Nashville Humane to rely on to say, hey, can you send a few responders over here with some crates to help us set up a temporary shelter and have that expertise roll in to support those groups is amazing when that's all people have left is that pet that they want to take care of. And then you have the animal control groups. Some of you shelters out there have contracts with your animal control groups to bring in animals. And you may have to consider in your planning, do these animals, when they come in, are they coming out of an impact zone? Are they held in a different location? Do they need quarantine? Do they need hazmat decon? Is this an everyday animal coming in and it's billed differently for animal control? And that's where it really starts to get into the red tape and the really too heavy pile, I call it. When we start digging down through the ideas, everybody comes to the first meeting and says, yes, we want to work together. And then we start hammering out the details. Okay, if animal control brings an animal in from the impact zone and the normal hold time is seven days, but congregate sheltering says you should hold for 30 days, who pays for that animal for the 30 days if the animal isn't? isn't reunited with its owner and are you really going to charge a disaster victim holding fees if you're an animal control unit or, or shelter so then how do you fundraise through that and some cities can't fundraise so they rely on the shelters and the ngos to do that and you guys were spiraling down the rabbit hole as we look at some of these topics but this is just scratching the surface mm 
of what you should be planning for in your metro. Um, and Laura has done a great job kind of transitioning and going through this maze of networking, um, but we see it at every level. It doesn't matter whether you're an individual agency, city, or if you're a federal entity, you are going to have to answer the hard questions. So there, I get off my soapbox. Sorry, guys. That's <laughs> no, all really, really important and, and, and pertinent. And, you know, Laura, so I'm part of our state's um, disaster response team and, you know, an animal control officer myself. And I think one of our hotly debated subjects is, is on sheltering. And, you know, we talk about co-sheltering, cohabitated sheltering and standalone emergency sheltering. What, um, what are you guys doing on those? fronts and um, you know I know it's a hotly debated subject you know everyone kind of has their opinion yeah I think um, what we do now is we do cohab sheltering um, it's important for us to the owner knows their animal best and Eric had touched on that resources are limited um, if you're just relying on government entities and not NGOs but um, we can provide some resources, but obviously it's always better if the owner can help take care of their own animal. We will supply the goods, but they do, um, you know, the walking, the feeding. We also co-shelter. Um, we take in animals here. They are isolated in a separate area. Um, so that's what Eric had touched on, them being housed for a different length of time. We know who's paying for it. It's, it's different than the animals that are already here in the shelter. We've also done standalone emergency animal shelters, um, but what I have found is the, at least in my own experience, our, the care that you have to provide to the animals is more difficult because you are in a different environment that's not naturally set up to take care of these animals. Um, so our preference always, or recently has been cohab sheltering, but we've done all three. Yeah, and there is a toolkit out now uh, that helps if you're not familiar with cohab sheltering. Um, we'll try to get some resource links up on our website, mm -hmm. uh, asartraining.com. Uh, but there is a national cool toolkit that was developed by Louisiana Department of Ag and Robbie Averett down there, um, which is just an outstanding plan to provide that to your community uh, and, and you know, your patrons there that, that may need it. And as you start looking at how many animals you should provide for or plan for, um, there are some tools out there to help you estimate animals in your area. Don't get too scared about, you know, numbers that go into the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. We know that out of that big giant number, 90% of the people are going to take care of themselves. So that leaves about 10% of that number to, for consideration. Of that 10%, we traditionally see 10% of that 10% that may be special needs, um, or low income that just doesn't have the resource to help themselves uh, or other factors that then you may have to plan for. So the, the rule of thumb that we tell people is your emergency planning should be able to handle anywhere between 100 and 200 animals in the first 24 hours. If you get more animals than that in your area in the first 24 hours, something really bad has <laughs> happened and you better be pulling the plug early on all your resources. I'm and, calling Eric when that happens. <laughs> right? um, and chances are uh, the resources will already be alerted if something that big happens. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, the, now I'll caveat this with the wildland fires, wildland fires, uh, you know, wherever they happen, constitute, you know, huge evacuations. And, you know, that's, that's a whole different story. But um, usually in these sheltering programs, we're not seeing just an overwhelming amount of animals come in because people will take care of themselves for the most part if they can. Um, so we're planning for the people that, that need just a little bit of hand up uh, or temporary support until they can get their feet on the ground again. So you mentioned a, a couple of community players, Laura, uh, everything ranging from additional networks to working with city government pieces. Um, have you found, or I guess, have you, have you guys established a communication protocol, even if your planning template isn't complete, do you at least know who all the players are and that you can make that phone call when, when it happens to say, um, hey, we're doing this part of the plan. What are you guys doing? Have you uh, had transparency in the planning process with your emergency management or are you finding some challenges? There are challenges. I think 
we have come to the table a couple times in the past year and one i wish we could meet more often and obviously everybody's got tons on their plate but disaster planning has to be a priority you have to be proactive and right now knowing our plan if something were to happen tomorrow it still scares me there is transparency in this is my role this is your role and I think a positive thing that's come out of this year with talking and meeting is I know the people behind the agency. You know, those relationship, relationships are formed. So if something were to happen tomorrow, I know who to call. Um, we have had some, like I mentioned the flooding, we have had some experiences where we've had to learn by what didn't go right. And meeting after that and not placing blame, but saying, okay, how can we do that better? Where do we fill in the gaps? who's filling in those gaps, how do we fund those gaps. So I think constantly meeting and being honest about how something has gone or preparing um, something that we don't do yet that I would love to do are the tabletop exercises. Um, again, to be proactive and to think of situations that Nashville could be prone to and just prepare for that. So I think we're headed in the right direction is it perfect? No. Um, we could definitely use help, but there is a willingness from every single person, and I think that's a great place to start. That's that's perfect. And uh, just for our listeners, um, you know, we're planning on doing additional podcasts that hopefully will include Laura, but also look at planning from different aspects and something that we're working on for 2020 uh, is you're going to start to see on the website a new branch develop and it's going to be the planning and workshop branch where we're going to come in or offer tabletops uh, for a, a metro area of any size to bring all the players together, run a scenario, do a gap analysis, and then leave a forward action package of here are the things that, that you can do on your own, here's the things we can assist with with the subject matter expert, um, and here's some networks that are currently in place if you don't have any. And then we're also gonna be working uh, on the government side with the EMAC program, and you've heard us talk about EMAC a little bit before, um, the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, which is your state sharing of resources, but how do we get these animal resources networked into mission-ready packages, and then how does that fit into the metro planning scheme? So when Nashville Humane is absolutely tapped on all of their resources, if it ever could happen, I don't know that it could, but if it got so bad that they needed assistance from the state, the state could then go into the EMAC database and say, okay, we can pull resources from other states if needed. Uh, so we'll be providing those types of workshops and training for administrators in middle management all the way down to boots on the ground so we can create that continuity of operations and hopefully fill in some gaps and take some of these issues that are in the too hard pile and put them in the oh that's doable now pile yeah. and and really knock out some of those and then as you mentioned laura after action reports and exercising this plan in some fashion every year to see if there's been a turnover someplace or if resources have either enhanced or diminished or gone away completely um, and then what players have developed to come in and, and fill those roles. So all of that, um, very applicable, and we look forward to uh, hopefully getting down to Nashville and hosting some of this training and really use it as a, as a national template for, hey, here's one of your up and coming cities that is growing every day with animal issues. Here's what they're doing to meet their community needs. We would love for you to come here. We can take you down to Broadway. You can do a doggy date with a dog. I'll have your whole time going out. Man, I'm excited. Some country music, some whiskey. It'll be a good time. Oh, there's Carla right there. There's my, there's my tag. Carla, Carla's on board now. Carla, you, you say whiskey. She went on a whiskey tour this year and broke the bank. Ooh, so. Nice. Nice. Kentucky brewery or a distillery tour. Um, no, I'm super excited about that middle management piece as someone who has tried to involve my, uh, my own community in, in planning. It's really, really exposed a lot of gaps. You know, they just kind of say, oh, animal control will take care of that. And what we found is no animal control can't take care of that. So I'm super excited about this middle management piece and what it's going to be for, what it's going to mean for uh, planning for all of these counties and cities. 
Laura, as we wrap things up, do you have any final advice for new responders or administrators, people that are tasked with planning in their area of what, what they can do for organizations? Yes, I think the biggest piece of advice I would give is say yes. Say yes to educational opportunities. Say yes to going to meetings. Be tenacious because there will be roadblocks and hurdles. Reach out to people that have done this across the United States internationally. Eric knows everything. Like I said, if I have any questions, uh, now everyone's going to be calling you, Eric. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Don't call me. Call uh, Carla, guys. <laughs> you know, if anything comes up, I have that relationship with somebody that knows so much. So there's a support system. And so I think it's really important for folks that start in this business to know the players that are already here, that are already, already doing the job and ask how you can get involved. Um, when Eric had asked me to uh, help with the social media in Hurricane Irma, I have two kids and was married at the time and had a full-time job, but I wanted to make responding a priority because I wanted to learn by the best and I wanted to experience it. So I think those that are new to this, say yes, be open to experiences and learn from those that are already out there doing it. That's great. Uh, Laura, if people want to learn more about Nashville Humane, what website do they go to? NashvilleHumane.org. It's a pretty easy one. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram. We are pretty um, pretty much on there all day, every day with cute puppy pictures. Um, but yeah, follow along. We have lots of fun things going on every day. That is great. And for our listeners, um, again, we're just getting started with the planning conversations. We're going to have many podcasts to come from different perspectives. Um, emergency management will be coming on. We'll have some federal partners coming on. We hope to get additional administrators from the association to come in and talk about their facilities and some of their challenges to help planners that, that may not have that experience um, to give them some perspective. And if you've got questions, want to want us to focus more on something that you heard from the podcast today, you can leave comments uh, on the on the podcast uh, that you subscribe to, um, or you can email us at info at and say, hey, on your next podcast, can you focus on this uh, particular topic a little bit more? I, I'd like some more information, and we are happy to accommodate that. Uh, because that's what this platform is all about, is getting the information out so anybody can have access to doing it. And I'm going to say this, quote, unquote, the right way. But, you know, I'm not saying there's one right way, but there's a great structured way and network where you don't have to reinvent the wheel. So we want to make sure people know that and they aren't struggling to get their planning done for their communities. Laura, thank you so much for your time. You were wonderful. You were way too generous in your compliments because I know you <laughs> lied through half of them. Um, <laughs> But we hope to have you back on and any time that, that we can uh, help Nashville Humane, please reach out to us. Yes, thank you both. We value our relationship with you guys and I am happy to come back on anytime you want to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> on March 3rd, a devastating tornado touched down in the Nashville area. We've asked Laura to come back and give us a quick update on response efforts. We've got a unique experience today on this podcast. We've been talking to Laura, as you've heard, on disaster preparedness in her community. And we always talk about if it's going to happen, and it's really it's when it's going to happen. And on March 3rd, it happened in the Nashville area. And we've got Laura joining us back now to finish this podcast up with an update. Um, it's five days later, Laura. You're back with Carla and I. Can you give us the latest SITREP situation report on what's been going on in your area the last five days? Yeah, so it's been organized chaos. You know how disaster mode is. Um, we at Nashville, um, under OEM and the Incident Command Center, we have tons of arms um, underneath the Incident Command Center. And right now, Nashville Humane Association, which is um, the organization I run, we are focusing our efforts on um, sheltering at human shelters because our Nashville human shelters are not pet friendly. So we have our mobile unit parked outside and we wanted to remove any hurdle um, that could potentially keep people from seeking shelter. And one of those hurdles was um, not being able to take their animals. So um, we try to take away that hurdle by having Teddy's wagon out. Um, we've had about six to eight animals every night and that's just at one lo human location. 
shelters location. Um, we are also at a second location at Holy Rosary. Um, and we are having about four to five animals every night there. We are partnering with our um, local government, which is Metro Animal Care and Control, and they are taking lead on the search and rescue aspect. Um, so they are out in the field. They have about six animal control officers out. We also have a team of volunteers that are canvassing the areas that were hit. And in Nashville, those areas are North Nashville and East Nashville. So um, two areas that the tornadoes basically plowed through. Um, it was devastating. A lot of those folks just got power back today, five days post-tornado. Um, so NHA has really been trying to partner with our local government as well as other agencies to provide as much resources to our community as possible. And it has been amazing to see everybody pull together. It's um, interesting in times of disaster, you really see the kindness of your community. And I am proud to say that I live in Nashville because of the character of all the Nashvillians and how we really um, are family. I was really impressed to see the the messaging come out fairly quickly after the event um, that, you know, temporary shelters were being established in multiple locations, which was amazing uh, in, in that, you, that you have that capacity to do that because we still, still do see a lot of communities do the co-location um, where, you know, we've got a shelter next to the, the human shelter. They're not cohab yet. Um, so that was really great to see that come out. And you, you, you said a couple keywords that I want to go back on. One of it was right there in the Nashville area. And typically we see in these events where we've got a tornado that has a long span life and it goes 100 miles. Is there a lot of the smaller communities that are hit uh, that don't get the televised coverage or don't get the notoriety of that there's damage there? Are you hearing from other communities or are you reaching out to the smaller communities to see what, what needs to be done there also? Yes. So um, something positive about working at National Humane is that I don't have to just work within government. During disasters, you know that we always try to help our neighbors, no matter what the county lines, state lines are. So we've been reaching out to Cookville, Putnam. They were the rural county that was hit east of Nashville. I'm lucky enough to be on the Animal Care and Control Association board and work with um, folks that work in that area. So I was able to reach out to them directly the next morning, um, right after the tornado. I communicated to all of the shelter directors to basically um, take an assessment if anybody um, had any needs for their agency. And then once we handled that, we figured out if they needed anything for their community. Um, and communication is absolutely key. And I think reaching out and knowing who you can rely on before these disasters happen is really important. We, we often see, and let me know if you've experienced this, um, right after the event, uh, people say, what can we do to help? And we say, we don't know, we don't have animal issues right now. It doesn't imply that we're never going to have animal issues. Have you seen the animal issues in recovery uh, pick up in the last three or four days after the event? Yes. So the, the tornado hit at 2.30 in the morning and um, we were called out around four. Um, we met them and came up with a plan, had meetings, and everybody was contacting us trying to see what our needs were. And we kept telling them, like, wait, it's coming. We're assessing. We need the dust to settle. Communication was down. A lot of cell phone towers were down. Um, electricity was out. So we were struggling with that as well. Um, but we um, worked really hard to keep up on communication. Uh, it really was a testament of... Um, trying to work together as a team and uh, I would say day three is when we really saw um, a huge need because people were either getting back into their property and seeing that what kind of devastation they were walking back to or they were still not getting power and so those that were holding out couldn't hold out any longer. Um, animals that were in hiding from the disaster are coming out and there's public safety concerns or um, animals that are injured so we've definitely seen a spike in um, the needs um, probably at day three really, really spike. Um, and that's taken a lot of coordination between agencies to figure out, okay, what resources do you have? Where can we plug it in? Um, and just being prepared. I think, you know, Eric, I've talked to you a lot about Nashville and, and how um, we are a big city, but we're also a very small community. And 
we meet regularly OEM and we try to work on animal issues and being prepared, but you just never, um, even if you feel really prepared, you never know where the disaster is going to hit or what issues you're going to have. There's so many variables. So um, I'm proud that we made it this far and I know we're going to learn so much when we do our hot wash. And I think that is um, something I'm excited about because we can grow together as a community and be even more prepared for the next disaster that will happen. I like how you started. You said it's not if it's when, and that's very true. Yeah. We see it a lot. You said a great word there, uh, hot wash. Uh, what efforts are you making to capture this event so you can actually uh, create an after action report for your ESF 11 team at, at the office of emergency management? So, you know, I couldn't tell you what day it is today. Um, the day is all kind of blurred together. And so even though we're having morning phone calls and evening phone calls and we're meeting, you know, um, the DART team and we're dealing with the fire squad and just different ESFs. And even though we're communicating, I'm also taking notes um, every day, even if it's just shorthand of things that I want to work on or things that can be um, improved upon next time, as well as keeping those open lines of communication, talking about kind of in times of disaster, it's not the time to talk about what worked and what didn't, but just mentally noting it and then writing it down at the end of the day. I call it a brain dump, which probably could have a better term, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I just sit there and I write an email to my leadership team, which they probably hate, um, and I just basically communicate everything that's on my in my head they do the same thing and then we move on to the next day so that we can look back um, to see what we documented all agencies all parties and then come together and discuss what can be done better next time and and that's a wonderful approach it's simple it's easy you know you try to do your best to recap the day and it doesn't have to be an official 214 you know over to the emergency management for people to learn things you can go back and look over those emails and start to glean it and you're absolutely right now's the time where you've got action and you're you're focusing on what's in front of you and in two or three months after you guys start to settle down you'll have a chance to reflect back and see oh yeah that really did happen and we assigned this many personnel these animals start coming in at these types of days these are the challenges that we faced and it may be everything from the initial communications as you stated that were non-existent because the infrastructure was down down to now we're seeing uh, some challenges because the the community has opened their hearts opened their closets and and donations and logistics are they becoming an issue now oh my goodness i we were just boots on the ground dealing with stuff in the field. And I guess I did not prioritize logistics back at the shelter. Like we all had a plan in place. We thought it was going to work and it didn't because the response was so overwhelming. We had traffic issues because of it. Um, uh, hubs that had supplies were full and weren't, were turning away volunteers. And so it got to be very overwhelming. And I think the community if we didn't communicate to the community as frequently as we do, I think they would have been more frustra frustrated. People want to help in times of need. People want to help their community. Um, and you mentioned earlier, it takes, you know, a couple days to settle down and figure out what needs to happen. And people want to help immediately. So giving them options and communicating them, you know, as much as you can about what's going on has really helped. Today, we told folks, I'm sorry we can't take your donations, but here's where you can take them. So providing them options where they're still engaged um, and their donations can still be used um, for the community, I think is really important. But I, if you would have asked me two weeks ago, you know, what would be a problem? I would have never guessed that we would have too many donations, too many volunteers, um, people waiting at the shelter at six o'clock to help people coming in and taking dirty laundry to their house and doing it. Like I, I have seen so much kindness in people that I'm exhausted at the end of the day, but I'm really happy. Right. Not happy that it happened, but happy no. that I do what I do. Yeah, and for our shelter management teams out there or, or community leadership, the logistics person in a disaster is your golden person because they have to start mm -hmm. figuring out how to demobilize donations before the donations actually get there. Those partners mm -hmm. and avenues, you know, it's it's really important to have those in place. Some stuff you may be able to set aside, palletize, and put in a warehouse or, or in, a, in a back uh, storage area 
uh, for the next event because there will be a next event and some stuff will, mm -hmm. will start to rot away. So uh, we really encourage, yes, we always sit there and, and do forward thinking on our field teams and our shelter teams. And, and we never give due diligence to what the heck we're going to do with everything because everything will show up, especially when the semis start rolling in, whether you ask for them or not. So, but you guys are doing a yeah. great job in public messaging. And I've seen just some, some heartwarming stories of animals being reunited and the fur babies being taken care of at night in the mobile uh, units so people don't have to worry and that they can get back to their houses or what's left of them and, and start to figure out what they're going to do with their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think just easing one part of anxiety for these folks when they are dealing with a house that's no longer there, family members that have passed away, you know, other priorities, the last thing I want them to worry about is what they're going to do with their animal. And so that's our goal at Nashville Humane. And that was our goal partnering with so many agencies. And I want to thank you, Eric, because I think what's really important in our career is making connections and working with people that are like-minded and passionate. And I know training with you, you helped me prepare for this disaster and I wouldn't know anything without you. And also the folks that I work alongside, um, Denise Bash at GGO, I mean, I called her immediately and she got me vaccination. Um, you know, knowing the right people that can get you what you need because they're doing the right thing and it's what they do every day and it's their expertise. I am um, more than grateful to know those folks in this career and learn every single day from them. Well, you know, I'm chomping at the bit now to come in 2021 and do a workshop <laughs> with everybody that played and let's mm -hmm. go through and play the workshop on the event now. And maybe we'll put a few twists and turns with it, but see, that'll give you guys a chance to do your actor action reports and start to fill mm -hmm. some gaps in. And it would be fun to go back and revisit it once you restructure some resources and say, yeah, this really worked well and, and hit it again uh, just in case. So, yes. Miss Laura, is there one story that has really stood out in your head so far? Uh, there's one story that I like because I think I went into it thinking one thing and then something else happened. I had a lady come, come to the shelter yesterday, and I'm tired. I'm on my fourth day, you know, the adrenaline's worn off, people are grouchy, everyone's burnout, you know, it's just it it's a roller coaster of emotions and you have to put those in check and be professional and the front desk came and got me and said hey there's a lady here she claims she has dogs from somebody that surrendered them in the field they're in really bad condition and you know she doesn't know what to do and at that time we were being flooded with stray animals and owner surrenders but this one just sounded weird so i went out there and um the lady was just bawling very emotional had these two maltese's in her car and um, they were in very, very bad condition. And she says, you know, I, I took them from somebody. Um, and my immediately, my immediate response was kind of a jaded response of, oh my gosh, she stole them from somebody. You know, in times of disaster, sometimes people mean well, but they don't follow the appropriate process. And I immediately jumped to that. And I said, well, you know, did you get any paperwork? Did you get this? Did you get that? And she said, no. And I explained to her, the legal requirements I needed to be able to take them from her. And she was like, Oh, I understand my, my husband's an attorney. So we were able to get the actual owner of the animals to sign them over and get them immediate care. One of them needed a leg amputation. Um, they were directly affected by the storm and the gentleman was about 90 years old and was overwhelmed and signed them over to this good Samaritan. And she was just trying to do the right thing. But I think I learned a lot from that because I was just jaded and I should have thought the best in people. And it surprised me how understanding she was and what good things she did. And then immediately impacted those two Maltese's that are now in foster care and um, you know, have been through a whirlwind, but it takes a community and a village to really make a difference. And that so far has stuck out in my mind. Yeah. And I'm really glad you could help those animals and you are in the right to be able to look at every case uniquely and and decide, you know, is something, and I'm gonna use our technical turn of wonky going on here. And of course I'm super jaded because I came from the law enforcement ACO side mm -hmm. where everybody seemed to lie to us about everything rather than let us help them. So that is totally understandable. 
Laura, what kind of advice would you give to other communities being right in the middle of this disaster that you would say, this is something that um, has fallen through the cracks and we need to fix? I think the immediately reflecting on everything, we first noticed that we didn't have an MOU with anybody. And that is something we rely on our partners, right? And we need to know who we tap in at the time of disaster and when we need help. And at the time, we didn't have any of the administration side of it done. We started the paperwork, but nothing was finalized. So I would suggest every agency to have an MOU with another agency that can assist you in these times um, to just streamline that admin process and making sure that you have the foundation that you need in place. I'm sure there'll be a lot of things in that after action report about improvements you can make and um, hopefully lots of great things and, and good things that your plan worked out. I'm glad that you're safe and we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Laura, for spending time with us today. I know you still have busy weeks to come during the recovery effort and the busy months to come as you start to collect your lessons learned and do your report outs. Um, we look forward to seeing the progress in 2021 in the planning sessions. And, you know, please pass on to your entire crew um, that we're so proud of that community effort and that you guys uh, in difficult times are rocking it to the best that you can and, and we couldn't uh, ask for more for such hardworking folks so well done to you i hope you don't have any more severe weather this year but if you do um you know i i am confident that you guys are in good hands because you're leading that bunch so thank you for all you do thank you and thank you guys for your support and eric for letting me call you, email you, text you all hours of the night, question, you are my Yoda, and I appreciate you so much. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to check out our Instagram and Facebook pages at ASAR Training and Response and our webpage at asartraining.com.